This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My co-host Mark Rotella is out this week, so I'm here on my own to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Bridget Hios discusses It's Getting Hot in Here, a kid's book on global warming. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot fills us in on the deal between Hachette and Perseus. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan, and here to help me present that to you and discuss it a little bit and do some fun nerding out is PW Features Editor Carolyn Juris. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, Rose. Very nice to have you here. Um, so you, you said, I'll come on if you'll let me geek out about BISAC codes. Geek out about BISAC codes. I want to hear all about it. <laughs> this is so geeky. So at the end of last year, BISG, the Book Industry Study Group, uh, revised their BISAC codes for allegedly 2015, although it didn't go into effect uh, until this year. And there were hundreds of new codes, things taken off the list. This is how we categorize books, whether it's an art book or a mystery or, you know, anything you can think of, there's a BISAC for it. And they get very specific. They get very, very specific. And what's exciting to me about the new codes is, um, as I'm sure listeners know, coloring books are the big thing, end of last year, beginning of this year. Um, And they finally have a coloring book BISAC code for adult coloring books. Hmm. Um, Previously, coloring books had everything from children's bisacks, even if they were very adult-oriented books, to um, they could be tagged as art color theory, which, <laughs> sure, you can get theoretical with your crayons. Um, as not, not quite the same. Not quite the same. So, um, you know, a few different ones now, BISG has given them their own bisac, which I believe it's under the gaming uh, super category. And it's activity books, including coloring books, they make a point of saying. So why this is exciting (laughs) is um, there are several books that have been kind of mainstays of the children's list because they had children's bisacks before. And this week they're on our adult um, paperback list for the first time. Gotcha. So uh, these books include the Harry Potter coloring book and the Harry Potter magical creatures coloring book both from Scholastic, a big children's publisher, but it now has the adult BISAC. Uh, those are Magical Creatures is number four, uh, and the coloring book, the other coloring book is number five on the list. And Joanna Basford, who's kind of considered the godmother of adult coloring books, um, her Enchanted Forest book is number 13 uh, on trade paper. For last week and all the weeks before, these were children's, considered children's books according to BISG. Fascinating. And there's um, a coloring book actually at number one on the trade paper list. There is. The funny thing about that is it's actually tagged as an art book. Huh. I guess they didn't get the memo about the new bisacks. <laughs> uh, and this is probably the ultimate nerd thing. It's the Doctor Who coloring book. It's number one in trade paper, number one across any format, actually, uh, with 39,000 print units sold this week. Wow. Yes. 
Uh, so everybody's got their wearing out their blue pencils covering right. in the TARDIS. That's right. Uh, there are actually two more of those coming, one, at least two more, one in July and one in October. That's great. So, yeah, it's going to shake up our lists a lot, but uh, it looks like we're still keeping a sense of how long books have been on the list. We're just changing which list we put them on. Exactly. I mean, the paperback list, I believe, shows this as the debut week for those books on the list because it is the debut book on or the debut week on the list. Right. But we've got their year to date sales. So that includes the children's. Got it. Very cool. So these new categorizations aren't going to affect sales in any way. Um, They're not going to shift how bookstores present the books to customers, for example. It's just how we're reporting on that. Yeah, I think so, because adults have clearly been finding these books anyway, regardless of whether they were categorized as children's. I've definitely been seeing them all over craft stores. Like you walk into Michael's and the very first thing, the big display of coloring books. Yes, and and easily 50 or 100 on those on those shelves yeah yeah it's uh, quite a phenomenon uh so tell us a little bit about what's happening on the hardcover nonfiction list this week there's a lot of books about food it's a lot of books about food and number one in hardcover nonfiction is actually called cravings and it's not about fighting your cravings it's about indulging them uh it's a cookbook by chrissy teigen who uh was a sports illustrated uh swimsuit model mm-hmm. is i think her first claim to fame. She's married to musician John Legend, and she's also been blogging about cooking for a number of years, at least since 2012, as far as I saw. Um, she has a huge social following, 5.4 million on Instagram, uh, more than a million on Twitter. Wow. And she cooks and she eats. So she says, I mean, if I could eat French toast casserole with salted frosted flakes and appear <laughs> on the cover of SI, that would really be something. Um, but we actually like this book. Um, we reviewed it favorably. Uh, we said she's got self-deprecating wit and down-to-earth charm and an irreverent attitude and fondness for all things junk foodie. So, I mean, who can't get behind that? Well, apparently uh, e- eating big meals and not counting the calories so much is, uh, is kind of the in thing now. The book right under that on the list is called Eat Fat, Get Thin. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. So... This is uh, by Mark Hyman. I believe he's an MD, although I can't recall. Uh, He's written a few other weight loss cookbooks that have been, at least just by their name, they've sounded more um, deprivation-oriented. The Blood Sugar Solution 10-Day Detox Diet. Yeah. Uh, This seems to be going in the opposite direction, uh, advocating a high-fat diet rich in eggs, nuts, oils, avocados. Uh, and what he calls uh, other delicious superfoods, although I'm not sure the superfood thing is actually remotely accurate or (laughs) scientifically valid. Um, But this is all about the good fats, which has been gaining ground recently. Uh, And that book is actually number eight overall, you know, any format, and it's number two in hardcover nonfiction. Sounds good. Sounds good. And, you know, a lot more fun than uh, depriving yourself or, you know, it's kind of putting a positive spin, I guess, on eating right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of other books. Um, this one, I guess, maybe a bit of a flip from Cravings. This is From Junk Food to Joy Food by Joy Bauer, who is uh, on the Today Show a lot talking about nutrition. Uh, this one is, she takes very high, high caloric, uh, fatty foods and then switches up the recipes somehow and knocks, you know, a quarter of calories or more off. So, a bacon cheeseburger goes from 1,100 calories, which I fully believe it has, Absolutely. to 435 calories, which I can't really imagine how she did, but I guess I should read the book. 
Uh, that one sold uh, a little more than 5,000 print copies. Uh, and then there's another book from Haley Pomeroy, who has done these fast metabolism diet books, which together have about 400,000 print units sold. Not wow. bad. Uh, her new book is Fast Metabolism Food RX Prescription. Uh, that sold almost 5,000 copies, and that uses diet to address um, health problems, everything from autoimmune issues to elevated cholesterol, mood disorders, the usual what have list. you. Yes. Um, well, on the fiction list, uh, I'm seeing some interesting stuff. Not a lot of movement this week. Uh, we do have a new number one, which is A Girl's Guide to Moving On by Debbie McComber. Uh, this is the second book in her New Beginnings series. We don't have a review of it, but um, it looks like uh, another Debbie McComber book for fans of her very family-oriented women's fiction. A lot about, um, in this case, it's a mother and her daughter-in-law um, who both bravely leave their troubled marriages, uh, according to the jacket copy. So um, that's not that's not a thing that you see very much. I mean, our culture is full of mother-in-law jokes and ideas that, you know, you will never, ever, ever, ever get along with your husband's mother. Right. Uh, and uh, to see these stories sort of put in parallel and these two women uh, working out their lives kind of separately and together is a really nice idea. Um, and so that's at number one on the fiction list. And um, then moving down the list at number nine is Wedding Cake Murder by Joanne Fluke. This is the 19th Hannah Swenson mystery. Um, and she's a baker uh, and an amateur sleuth. And um, one of those cozy mystery type people who you really just don't want to be too close to because sooner or later people get killed. <laughs> and it's never her fault. It doesn't exactly. sound cozy at all. Um, <laughs> And uh, we say that the plot relies heavily on coincidence, but Fluke's cast is lively and winsome enough to carry the tale. Uh, and also, um, Hannah Swenson, the uh, protagonist, uh, has been a romantic flip-flopper for 18 books now, and in this 19th one, she may finally walk down the aisle. So long-time fans will be very happy to see that. I'll bet. Uh, moving down a little bit uh, at number 21, A Gathering of Shadows by V.E. Schwab. I'm really excited to see this. Uh, we love these books. This is the second book in her uh, fantasy series. The first one and the second one both got very positive reviews from us. This one got a star. Um, and we say it's a fantastic follow-up that returns to her setting of four different versions of London. So there's Grey London, which is what we think of as London in our world um, in the Regency era. Uh, Red London, where people and magic work together. There's White London, where people struggle for control of magic. And Black London, which was destroyed magic. So all hmm. these um, different ways of existing with magical power or without it. Uh, and of course, it follows the very, very few people who can travel between the different versions of London, bringing forbidden artifacts from one place to another. Uh, so we, we love these books. Uh, and I also did a podcast with her back in 2013, talking about uh, one of her other books. It's just great to see her on this upward trajectory. Very happy to see her there on the bestseller list. Do they have a projected number of books in the series? Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be a trilogy uh, or if it's uh, you know, just an ongoing series, but there's so much potential in sure. the setting. I love the first book. I haven't gotten to read this one yet, uh, but it's just, it's very interesting. And underneath the sort of adventure plot, there's a lot of stuff about control of resources and who gets to go where and who gets to own what. Um, that I think is very topical and timely, especially as we're talking about refugees, migration, sure. who has space for whom. Uh, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff 
going on there. So um, really, really nice to see that uh, making a splash. And down at number 25, I just wanted to note Hidden Bodies by Carolyn Kepnius. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. And uh, this one is a, a dark, quirky sequel to her 2014 novel, You. And the narrator is a serial killer. So this <laughs> is a device that uh, we've been seeing pop up occasionally, and she handles it very well. Uh, we say we're very impressed that uh, the author convinces the reader to empathize with her killer protagonist. Uh, so that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a challenge, and in, indeed, that's one that not every reader is going to be interested in. Um, but for those who like the idea of trying to get into the head of somebody like that, um, this is a great way to do that. So that's Hidden Bodies, and that's at number twenty-five. And uh, that's pretty much everything that I've got on uh, the fiction list here. Okay, uh, there's actually some pretty big news in the children's list on mm-hmm. the children's front list fiction. Uh, the new number one with fifteen that more than fifteen thousand print units sold uh, is Firelight, which is number seven in the Amulet graphic novel series by Kazu Kibuishi. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book has had a steady build since it first came out. It has sold uh, altogether books one through six have now sold uh, well over six hundred thousand wow. copies uh, in print. Um, you know, it started out. When it first came out, selling a couple hundred copies its first week, then a couple thousand. Uh, Then in 2013, uh, the author-illustrator did the paperback covers for Harry Potter. Uh And I think that brought him to the attention of a lot of people who may not have known him before. So the uh, Amulet series is about a girl named Emily, her younger brother, Navel, and their mother, Karen, who move into the children's great-grandfather's house. And there they discover a portal to a dangerous alternate world. Uh, the amulet in question is something that Emily finds that I believe provides protection as amulets do while they tra- travel through this through this treacherous world. Well, it's exciting. Um, so yeah, 15,000 copies sold its first week out. That's very impressive. It's very impressive, yeah. Uh, even uh, the previous book, Escape from Lucian, uh, which came out in 2014, so right after the Harry Potter thing, uh, that only sold about nine th- only quote <laughs> nine thousand yeah. its first week, uh, so interest is definitely building. Uh, actually, in toward the end of last year in November, Twentieth uh, Century Fox acquired the property, and it's going to be produced by the people who produced the movie version of The Fault in Our Stars. Oh, nice! So that's pretty good pedigree right there. Definitely, and this is another big splash for Scholastic. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for coming on, Carolyn. It's always great to get your take on things, and uh, especially on the children's side. Mark and I don't get to talk about that a lot, but I know you're an expert, so uh, it's good to have your perspective. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rose. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Bridget Heos tells us how to explain climate science to kids. We'll be right back. I'm Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Bridget Hios on the line. Her new book is It's Getting Hot in Here. Bridget, I'm so glad you could join us. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. So your book explains global warming to tweens and teens. How do you approach such a sensitive topic, especially for kids? Well, my editor, Cynthia Platt, asked me if I would write about this topic, And at first, I actually balked about writing about it because 
I, while I, of course, vote and um, study the issues, I don't like to write about politics. Mm-hmm. And I don't even like to really talk about politics. But I realized, you know, it's actually not a political um, to me, it's not a matter of political debate. It's a scientific fact. And the fact that it's been made into a political debate isn't global warming's fault. It's still mm-hmm. very much a true fact. So I decided that I'd love to write about it as a science topic. And I think it's the worst humanitarian crisis of our time. And so, of course, I'm honored to be able to write about it. And I think it's also a great opportunity for um, this generation coming up because the economy is going to change with green energy. So for all those reasons, I wanted to write about it. And, um, you know, I think I was able I think I was able to write about it in a positive way, even though it is a daunting issue. Um, I think people are tackling it and um, I think we're making we're making headway in addressing global warming. Uh, I mean, a lot of adults find global warming pretty scary. So do kids react the same way when you start talking about it? Well, I don't know that that they're seeing it as scary. Um, I've started touching on it on school visits um, when when I do my nonfiction presentations. And I think it's interesting to them. I don't know that they realize that global warming Um, is happening right now. Mm. Sometimes they think it's in the future. Um, I also think in a way because of, of all the, um, of all the books out there, like the hunger games, kids are a little pessimistic about the future anyway. And I think that maybe global warming is the reason for all these books. So um, I think if, when you tell them, hey, we're, we're going to make changes and we're going to address this problem, it's almost a relief to them because I think they almost assume that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and they're happy to hear that people are doing things to, um, to curb global warming and that, they, and that there are lots of opportunities for them to do that too. So what kinds of opportunities do you, do you talk about for these kids? Um, you mentioned green energy. Right. Just that you can that there are opportunities for inventions, um, you know, opportunities for new kinds of energy, for bringing wind energy to your state or to your business. Um, just, I guess to, for engineers, I think it's a, if you go into engineering, it's just a great time to be a problem solver and solve big problems that are helping the world. What a great way of putting it. I can I can like, hear you saying that to your kids. Yeah, it's a great time to be a problem solver. That's it. That's well, a good... I, I actually just handed the book to my son last night um, because he's interested in being an engineer. And I'm like, you need to read this book so that you understand the economy that you're going to be working in and that um, you're going to, if you become an engineer, will be, I, I think it's it will be exciting. It'll be a way to make money in a way that helps the world. So um, what else are you doing to help kids kind of prepare to be adults in what's looking like it's going to be a warmer world? Well, I think that in the book, it talks about how certain organizations are preparing. Um, It might surprise some people. I don't know if it would surprise kids that the U.S. military is – one of the biggest combaters of global warming they're they're working on green energy and they're also preparing for 
problems that are going to happen because of global warming, um, migration and um, droughts, and of course, unrest that happens um, when droughts and food shortages occur. So I think to see that whether you go into the military or engineering or medicine, um, there are a lot of problem solvers are going to be needed to address to address to address the things that are going to happen no matter what we do to try to stop global warming at this point. It's already underway and we're trying to reduce the effects, but they're going to be um, helpers are going to be needed in a lot of different areas. And and I, I hear that helpers in sort of the, the Mr. Rogers sense. Oh, definitely. I think I love what he says about in in a time of disaster to look to the helpers. And I think when I started writing the book, it it surprised me how many people are working to um, to slow the effects of global warming and to get ready for global warming. And for me, that was really heartening. I actually sent an email to my agent and editor and said, this topic is not as bleak as I thought it was going to be. People are doing a lot of things. And um, of course, there's still gridlock. You know, the Supreme Court um, just halted action on um, curbing emissions from coal companies, mm-hmm. but they'll revisit that. Um, so you see things like that, and it is disheartening. But I think now there, even something like that can't stop America from moving forward um, on our plan to curb emissions because we have such a responsibility now. Um, with our world world agreement. So I try not to get disheartened by by things like that and realize it's just one more problem to solve and I'm confident that it will be solved. So tell and us, I want kids to be too. Yeah, definitely. So tell us a little bit about how the book is structured. I, I think a lot of adults who are listening to this uh, probably haven't picked up a nonfiction book for kids in quite some time. So what, what would we find when we flip through your book? Well, it starts out giving a, uh, it starts out talking about how climate works and it explains, um, it explains things like how a lot of times you hear, if you hear someone who doesn't believe in global warming, they'd say, well, if global warming's happening, then why is it so flipping cold this winter? And it explains how wildly, um, weather fluctuates from winter to winter. I live in Kansas City, and we might have one winter that is 20 degrees. The average temperature is 20 degrees different from year to year. And so the fact that our temperature has risen 1.4 degrees, you're just not going to see it um, from day to day as much as you are from these weather events that we're having because of global warming. So I explained that a little bit and then um, go into the history of, of climate change. Of course, climate has changed long before humans came into the picture, but also explaining that just because climate change can happen for natural reasons doesn't mean it doesn't happen for human reasons, which it is now. And then going into how we know that global warming is happening, how we know that we're causing it. And then it also, it does get into politics a little bit and human nature to say, well, if global warming is happening, if scientists agree, then why did we have this gridlock? And why are some people skeptical? And then finally talking about solving global warming um, and all the opportunities with power and what people are already doing um, to change over to green energy and energy efficiency. 
So that sounds like a great overview. Um, do you ever feel that you need to address uh, concerns raised by uh, kind of apocalyptic books or movies that deal with climate change? Where you have these you know, movies where suddenly it's an ice age, or you know, suddenly the seas are three feet higher. Um, do you do you get kids worrying about this kind of extreme scenarios? Well, I hope not. I try not to be um, make it too scary. Um, I I do at one point say kind of the extreme scenario where basically if we did nothing, this is what could happen. But the reason I say that is because I don't want people to think, well, if global warming is already happening and we're already seeing the effects and there's nothing we can do. Um, so I, I hope that it's another point of optimism in a way that says we, we should never throw our hands up. There's always something we can do and we can always make it better than it would be if we did nothing. And I do say that it's not, you know, Earth isn't going to turn into Venus or, or anything like that. And um, Earth will actually survive global warming. It's just that we're used to how Earth is now. And this is how our country lines have been drawn. And this is where people are living. We rely on water and food to be available in those places. So it's going to make it really hard for us if all of that changes. And that's why, um, and that's why we're combating global warming as opposed to we're trying to make the world not, you know, and it's, it's not going to be that bad, but um, it's going to be hard on people, very hard. So I've, I was uh, reading an interview where you said um, you're talking about approaching your life as a tragedy or a comedy. Uh, and you say, you know, why would your life be a tragedy? Don't give up, never say die. So does that approach help you kind of keep your books aimed at positive action, positive thinking? Oh, definitely. I think, um, you know, and I tell my own kids this, nothing, no problem you come to me with, will I react in shock or say, well, it's all over now, or, you know, we can always um, solve it together or deal with it together. And um, I definitely feel that way. I think that, um, I think that at, maybe as I became a parent, I became more of an optimist and more of um, feeling like, hey, it's it's going to be okay. Um, and so I do feel that way. And I try to present um, this subject matter in that way. But I have to say that as I was doing research, I really felt like it is going to be okay. Um, you know, the just the Paris Agreement, all the countries are coming together to to address this in their own way that makes sense for their country. But I think everyone's finally on the same page and the skepticism is almost going by the wayside. Um, it just doesn't make sense anymore and it's not up to date. So I, I'm not just acting like I'm optimistic about the topic. I think that I really am. So tell us a little bit about some of the interesting technologies that you learned about and wrote about when you were doing research for your book. Okay, well, I was interested to learn how much how much power we have available to us. Um, for instance, the air, I, I read that Arizona, um, the Arizona desert, the sun could power the United States. Um, of course, that energy would have to be transported throughout America, so it won't happen exactly like that. Um, but the fact that 
solar panels, I think, are becoming more affordable. Um, I read that in the near future, we could be buying solar panels from a home, um, you know, a home fix-it store, a hardware store, and be able to plug it in and boot it up on our computers. And so it'll be, you know, it could be a do-it-yourself project. Um, In terms of biofuels, um, that's a topic that I really like. Um, I learned that cars can pretty easily switch to biofuels, um, be manufactured to be biofuel cars. Um, The challenge is to find the right biofuel, um, the biofuel that would be good for the environment while it was being grown. So it wouldn't take up space for food um, and it would be more of a, um, more of a waste crop right? that could be grown anywhere. I, I think that stuff's interesting. Um, waste energy. I love that, that at certain landfills, um, the garbage is being incinerated for energy use. Hmm. It seems like it makes sense. Um, it's interesting to me that on some farms, the farmers actually use the manure from their animals to power their own farms. And um, I just think, I like the idea that anything that is, um, anything that's a waste product or, and that used to be a plant or animal, anything can be used for, for energy. That's why we use coal and oil right now. But I just think, um, there are so many options for green energy and I liked learning about that. And I'll be interested to watch what companies are the most innovative when it comes to green energy and become the leaders in that industry. We're gonna take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Bridget Hios, author of It's Getting Hot in Here, who's telling us about some actually very optimistic prognoses for what's going on with global climate change. Uh, so you've written uh, a whole bunch of science books for children, like uh, Do You Really Want to Visit Jupiter? and What to Expect When You're Expecting Hatchlings. I love these titles. Oh, uh, thanks. What, what are the joys and the challenges of explaining science to kids? Well, it's fun for me because I think I'm, I, have, I still have kind of that childish sense of wonder where I read things and I can't believe it. So I want to share that with kids. Um, Like one fact I share with kids on school visits is that I read that an ant could fall from almost any height and not get hurt because it's so lightweight. And I also read an article about how amazing it is that um, just that insects transform from a larva to an adult insect and they're actually becoming a new animal in their own lifetime. So what I tell kids is that this would be like if you went to sleep tonight and tomorrow you woke up and you were a bat. And they're like, whoa. So I just think it's fun to put it in terms, to 
to make them see see things that they know or that they see every day and realize how incredible it is. I mean, if they had never seen an insect and then they all of a sudden came to Earth, if they were from another planet and saw insects, they wouldn't believe their eyes. And those are our own creatures on our own planet. Um, so I think it's fun to um, kind of not exaggerate, but point out how amazing our world our world is to them. And as for the challenges, um, usually the topic is pretty explainable to kids. I will say um, my book, Stronger Than Steel, that was a tough one. That, that, that one talks about how goats are producing spider silk proteins in their milk. Mm-hmm. And it's just the process has a lot of molecular biology to it. And so I just think of that at that level, it's, it can get a little hard to explain because it's something you wouldn't be able to, um, it's something you haven't seen in your day-to-day life. So, right. You can't, you can't see it and touch it. Right. Um, but I, I love the idea of the kind of looking at insects with fresh eyes or looking around the world and really seeing it and not just taking it for granted. Yes. I, um, yeah, I like talking to kids about that and I tell them that's why I, I write about insects. That's why they're one of my favorite. I mean, they are the strangest creatures on earth, I think. Maybe, maybe fish would be close rivals, but um, that's why I write about them so much. And a topic I wrote about recently that hasn't come out yet, but it's about how different plants and animals are um, are like people. Mm-hmm. Do things like people. So like I wrote about how bower birds um, actually decorate their bowers <laughs> to attract the female birds and um it's fun i like doing school visits because i get to see that kids are as surprised by these facts as i am and as excited about them so that's the fun part about writing science for kids science is almost just like here's all the amazing things in the world Um, this is the world you live in it's incredible and um, it's funny because uh, I think of kids as doing that for adults as helping us see things through new eyes and sort of really look at things that we take for granted. So it's it's nice to see that it goes both ways. Right. They, I think they do. And um, and maybe they're already thinking these things. Um, it is sometimes I'll talk about the topics and they already know about them mm-hmm. or they'll even I'm, I said the, the edge of outer space the other day. And then when it came time for questions, the boy raised his hand and said, OK, first of all, there's no such thing as the edge of outer space. <laughs> I was like, OK, I, I need to um, I need to do more research on that. So, yeah, they, they know so much about the world and there are so many great nonfiction sources for them um, that I think. I think they, I mean, kids like the song, they definitely know more than I'll ever know, or they'll learn more. So it's an exciting time to, um, to be in the field of education in a way with the nonfiction books. A short while ago, I met a friend's daughter who informed me very seriously that she was a dinosaur scientist. And yeah, she had two missing front teeth, but she could still say Parasaurolophus much better than I could. <laughs> I, was right. just, I was just so impressed. You know, kids can really focus on a topic and then just soak up everything about it. Yes, they're not. Nonfiction isn't dumbed down for them. Like, I th- I don't know if it they were trying to dumb it down or just simplify it. But I know when I was a kid, 
I think I knew that there were four dinosaurs. It was, right. mm-hmm. you know, the T-Rex, Brontosaurus, Triceratops. Um, and now, yeah, you look at a kid's book, they're, they're saying 50 different dinosaurs and the kids are learning all of them. So I think nonfiction has caught up with um, how smart kids really are. So you've written over 70 books for children of all ages. Do you have a favorite age group to write for? I do like writing for the really little kids. I think that they they do have such a great imagination and um, you can make it kind of fun and silly for them. Um, but I love writing for the junior high kids because I really like talking to the junior high kids. And so usually when schools have me come visit, it's for the little kids, but sometimes they'll throw in an older group And I love that because they're just so fun to talk to and they have such great questions and they have such a base of knowledge already. So um, I guess writing these books for older kids gives gives me an excuse to sometimes get in the classroom with them and talk to them. And uh, when when I was looking down your list of previous previously published titles, um, I saw a couple I just have to ask about. One is Polluted Water and Your Vital Organs and the other is Radioactive Contamination and Your Risk. Who's the audience for those books? Well, those are, so most most of my nonfiction books, the editors come to me with the topic. And so um, that my editor, Rosen, came to me with the topic. And so I don't know why they chose those topics. <laughs> um, I don't know if they got a request from a school system or a librarian. Um, it, it sounded like there was one really worried kid who was, who was very, very concerned that polluted water was doing terrible things. Right. Yeah. The radioactive contamination. Um, and that was one where really, as I was writing it, it was more of a, okay, it's going to be okay. You know, (laughs) right. There's a big difference between a, a nuclear bomb and a nuclear power plant and, um, you know, cases of, um, health problems from nuclear power plants are nowhere near at the levels of, problems from coal plants you know I think people kind of um, weigh the the risk out of proportion there and then the polluted water water one um, gosh I wish I was writing that now with Flint Michigan yeah I was thinking that it's suddenly topical yeah that I hope someone does do a book just specifically a children's book just specifically about um, Flint Michigan I think that would be a a great topic um you know, a book like this one for junior high kids. So yeah, that would be a tough one to present from a um, positive point of view. But I guess just talking about the problem solving aspect of it, um, and what will happen in the future. And on a lighter note, um, you've summarized the lives of Rihanna, Jay-Z and Lady Gaga for children. Um, Was there a lot that you had to leave out? Well, um, when it came to Jay-Z, of course, I didn't um, use any of the bad language um, or, you know, controversial language that would be in his songs. Mm -hmm. But they did. They wanted me to talk about his life. And he had a really hard life, um, you know, that involved poverty and, um, you know, some drug dealing when he was younger. So but I think... um, going back to the positive that it was just so incredible that he became um, such a, that he became such a business mogul 
um, coming from that point of, of poverty and that he was not only an, a rap artist, but that he, um, you know, had the savvy to create his own company so that he would make money off his, himself instead of someone else making money off of him. So I was able to include a lot. They don't, they don't really want it watered down. Um, Lady Gaga, it was the same thing. She, I think she'd had, um, well, no, a very different <laughs> life with Lady Gaga. Um, but yeah, I was able to include pretty much everything in her life. We just don't include any um, bad words. Makes sense. So all of your books are um, illustrated. How do you collaborate with your illustrators? Well, for nonfiction, um, if it's if it's photo illustrated, I'll work with someone in the publisher to find these photos. Sometimes they'll find them. Sometimes we'll work together. Sometimes I'll find them. Um, with Stronger Than Steel, there was a photographer, so we traveled together and did the research for the book. But that's unusual to have a dedicated um, photographer for the book. And then for any picture books like Mustache Baby, I'm really completely separate from the illustrator. Um, the editor talks to me about improving the book, and then the editor talks to the illustrator about the vision for the book, but we don't, the illustrator and I don't talk at all. So um, tell us a little bit about Mustache Baby, because uh, it's so different from your nonfiction writing, and it sounds totally adorable. Well, Mustache Baby, so I'd written lots of nonfiction books, and I did want to write a make-believe book. I loved fiction when I was little. Um, I got into nonfiction writing because that's what my son was gravitating towards, and it's something I thought I could do with my um, with my freelance writing background. But I wanted to write make-believe, and I couldn't think of an idea, and then I was in the library, and I saw... Um, the book Crash by Jerry Spinelli, which has a baby with a mustache on the cover, but it's not about that. And my son and his friends saw it and were laughing. So I thought, well, I'll write about that baby on the cover. And I thought, well, what would be, what would happen if a baby really was born with a mustache? And immediately I thought, well, it would depend on if it was a good guy or bad guy mustache. <laughs> so then I basically had the whole story laid out in front of me. And originally, Billy was going to, because of his mustache, actually live in the grown-up world. But my agent told me, you know, have him be a baby. Just have it be in his imagination. So I changed it. And then it became Mustache Baby. And kids really like Mustache Baby. And it's allowed me to go to a lot of schools and talk to the kids. So that's been a really fun book. And tell us a little bit about how these school visits go, because um, um, do you read to the to the kids? Do you just hang out and take questions? Have they usually read the book already by the time you get there? They had they've usually read Mustache Baby. Um, that's that's the reason why I'm usually brought into these schools is because of Mustache Baby. Sometimes Mustache Baby would have won like a children's book um, choice award at the school. So a lot of times I get there and the librarians will even say, I didn't know that you wrote all those nonfiction books. So, but half of my presentation is about nonfiction. So I start out telling how I became a writer and then I talk about nonfiction, fun facts from nonfiction. And then I go into how Mustache Baby came about. And then we do read the book, but we add sound effects. So it's a little different than how they would have heard the book before. And there are times for um, for questions or often comments. So that's fun. 
And uh, finally, I was wondering what your research process is like. Uh, do you go into these assignments uh, sometimes knowing a lot, sometimes knowing a little? You said they, they mostly come from your editor. Right. Usually when I, when I start out, um, you know, I have usually the topics are um, timely. So I have, I have a little bit of knowledge, just kind of the average citizens um, type knowledge. And so I start out reading books um, that, that kind of cover the basics. Um, a couple books I really liked for It's Getting Hot in Here um, were Earth, The Operator's Manual, and then um, Six Degrees, which that book's um, interesting because it takes each degree of global warming and talks about what will happen at that degree. And then I get into more nitty-gritty um, sources like the IPCC reports and EPA reports, um, articles from science journals, government sources, um, university reports, so things like that to, A, bring it up to date from when I'm doing my research because the books that I'm reading, you know, are already a couple years out of date by the time they come out. And um, just to get more details and make sure I'm forming my own conclusions, um, doing my own research. And then I write an extremely detailed outline so that when I write, go to write the book, I've got my outline on one side of the screen and I can just fire away on the actual manuscript. And what's coming up for you next? Um, this book is coming out or is just out and uh, you mentioned something else that you've got in the works. Well, I actually have another very serious topic um, that I've written about, and it's called the book's called Blood, Bullets, and Bones, The History of Forensic Science from Sherlock Holmes to DNA. That's with HarperCollins. So that, um, that talks all about how, you know, how in the old days, if a crime was committed, either it wasn't, no effort was made to solve it or just someone was plucked out of the crowd. You know, you look guilty. Well, hang you. And then how they actually started doing detective work to find, um, to find the culprit on these murders, beginning with poison tests, um, all the way up to DNA, which has really debunked a lot of the old science and convictions based on bad science, um, like bite mark comparison. So that was, um, that was another hard topic to write about. Um, you know, this is, these lives are broken by these murders, but I did try to do it the same way, you know, but now we're trying to solve them and we're trying to take these people off the street and we're trying to prove that some of these people were actually innocent. So there are still the helpers that are trying to make things right when these tragedies happen. We've been talking with Bridget Heos. You can find her book, It's Getting Hot in Here, in stores right now. Bridget, thank you so much for joining us and taking such a positive spin on everything. It brightens the day. Oh, thanks, Rose. <laughs> thank you very much. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot tells us how Hachette finally bought part of Perseus. Stay tuned. I'm Dookie Hong. And I'm Matt Rodbard. We're the authors of Koreatown, a cookbook, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about what I had on my script as Hachette buying Perseus Publishing, but since then, there's been even more breaking news. Tell us about it, Jim. 
Hey, Rose. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on in a, a lively afternoon here. Yeah, what we really have here is the the sale of Perseus Books Group, which was you know one of the lar- the ten largest publishers, distributors in in the country, and arguably the largest privately held one. Mm-hmm. Um, they had about a hundred million dollar publishing business, and they did distribution for about five hundred other publishers, and that earned them about three hundred million dollars. Um, so they were they almost sold it about two years ago in the fall they put it up for sale again and today uh, we have a two-part transaction being completed okay so the first half of that which uh, we already reported in the PW Daily Hachette buying Perseus Publishing right Um, (laughs) funny enough Hachette uh, and Ingram had agreed to buy uh, Perseus in 2014 but the deal fell apart at the last second and Today or this week, we have Hachette going back and you know, getting the deal right this time. Um, and it, it's important for Hachette because they've been looking to um, beef up their Don fiction publishing for quite some time. And mm-hmm. that was behind the, the reason why they tried to buy it uh, you know, two years ago. And it, it's certainly been the reason they went after it uh, this time. It adds about 6,000 titles wow. to, uh, to Hachette. And gives them a real uh, a real boost up in the nonfiction area. And it also gives them a, uh, a presence in some cities where they haven't had offices previously. They said they're going to keep that all running pretty much, right? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, running press is is a big presence for um, Perseus in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and there's no reason to to shut that down. They do a very unique style of publishing, and then there are the more academic operations out in Boulder. And that doesn't Hachette doesn't really have anything that um, really fits in with that. So again, no real reason to, to shut that down. Then they have a little Berkeley operation. So I guess you need somebody on the West Coast. <laughs> sure, why not? Um, and uh, and then the distribution side uh, is going to Ingram. And the distribution side is going to Ingram. And again, two years ago, um, Ingram was going to buy them. Now you know Ingram Publisher Services. It's a, it's a large distributor in its own right. They have about 100 clients. So this time they're adding another 500, and this will make them, you know, far and away the largest uh, distributor of, of publishers. Wow. So what changed between two years ago and today? Do we know? Well, we have uh, something of an inkling. When, when it fell apart two years ago, it was a much more complicated deal in that Hachette bought Perseus, and then was going to turn around and sell the distribution arm to Ingram. And what we've gathered, you know, over the last, you know, 18 months or so, is that at the last second, there was some disagreement over certain charges in the, um, on the distribution side. I Mm -hmm. mean, reports have it, there was like a five or six million dollar discrepancy over some way some things were accounted for. The distribution business, you know, it's kind of complicated. You know, you sell in you know your clients' um, titles, and you take a you know a fee for what it is a percentage. So it was never really entirely clear about what the what the fight was over, but it might have been something like reserves for returns or something like that. Sure. So you want to get into the arcane world of uh, publishing accounting. So anyway, at the last second, uh, that's what happened. So this year, this time they went to a, um, a very straightforward deal. Hachette bought the publishing on its own and Ingram bought the distribution side on its own. 
Got it. So um, everybody's heads are kind of spinning right now. Um, do we have a sense of what the implications are for their existing clients? Yeah, well, you know, it's, you know, uh, I think some people are a little sad to see more consolidation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like as we said, Persis was you know, a big player in the independent uh, bookmark uh, market. And they were, that's what they were set up to do. I mean, they wanted to by Frank Pearl, who died a few years ago, which really led to this whole thing happening. Um, but he set it up because he wanted to give a home for independent publishers. And, you know, some of the, the um, imprints that they own, or we've mentioned Running Fairs, Public Affairs, Westview Press, Basic Books, Avalon Travel, you know, some you know, pretty well-regarded uh, independent imprints that were part of Perseus. So, you know, they're all moving over to Hachette. You know, Hachette's you know, a good publisher. Um, they're going to put them in their own Perseus Books group under uh, Susan Weinberg, who's been heading up the Perseus publishing side for a number of years. So so that'll be good for them, I think. Um, you'll probably see a little more consolidation and some more integration when the distribution side moves over to Ingram. Right. Um, we'll have to see how that works out. So it's that'll be the more interesting one in terms of uh, how they get it all done. The Hachette one could really be pretty straightforward in terms of, hey, we don't have a lot of nonfiction publishing. Here's your publishing group. You know, have, you know, go at it. Right. Run it the way you've been running it. You seem to be doing fine. Right. That's what they, that's what, you know, Michael Peach said, you know, that's what their plan is to do, you know, and, uh, you know, add on some services for them that, you know, Hachette, you know, is a good publisher, as we said, and, uh, great distribution, so so they'll take over that, and a good publisher. Um, and it really does, as we said, gives them a bigger nonfiction imprint. When they didn't buy Perseus the first time, they went out and they bought about a thousand titles from Hyperion, hmm. um, which got out of adult publishing for all intents and purposes a few years ago. Um, and then they went out and bought a little imprint called Black Dog and Leventhal, which added, you know, 200 or so titles. So now you can see, you know, uh, guess on July 2014, after the deal fell apart, they said, oh, we, we don't have much nonfiction. And now, uh, you know, two and a half years later, they have over 7,000 more nonfiction titles. So, uh, you know, that's that's where they want to go. So that'll be interesting to see if that move continues or if they take a little time to let that settle? I think they'll probably let it settle. But uh, again, uh, Michael Peach said, you know, they they want to get bigger still. You know, um, wow. they're owned by a French company that is, is still very interested in the American book market. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've definitely put their money where their mouth is and there's no reason to think they won't. Well, this is very exciting. I appreciate you uh, keeping us apprised of all of the updates and I'm sure there's going to be a full write-up coming very, very soon. <laughs> very soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rose. Thanks a lot, Jim. Always great to have you on the show. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Tom Hart, the creator of the book Rosalie Lightning, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another thrilling author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. 
Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 